This is a Federal News Network podcast. A series of challenges in the new year hosted by the Homeland Security Department's Science and Technology Directorate will help measure the accuracy of tools meant to test the validity of someone's identity. The sessions will challenge industry to deliver secure, accurate, and easy-to-use remote identity validation technologies. This so agencies can prevent identity fraud when users apply for government services or maybe open bank accounts or verify social media accounts. For more, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke to the head of the S&T's Biometric and Identity Technology Center, Arun Vimori. For almost a year now, we've been planning to uh, announce a new technology challenge. Uh, we've been seeing this significant adoption of what we call remote identity validation technology. So this is things where people might be applying for financial services or applying for government services or even just opening or kind of uh, doing stuff with social media accounts where they have to take a photo of their driver's license, uh, take a selfie uh, to help prove who they are. Some of the things that we've seen there is obviously um, these are not devices that are necessarily designed to scan driver's licenses, right? How well can you take a visible light photo and figure out whether or not the the document's real or not when maybe some of the security features might not be visible? If you take a selfie, how well can the software tell that it's really uh, a human being and not a photo of a photo or a photo of an iPad screen or something like that? Uh, And then how well can we actually match that person back to the reference image on their driver's license, right? So while there's a lot of use of this technology and there's a presumption that it works well, we don't have hard numbers about how well it works, right? And and if you think about the federal agency and DHS in particular, a lot of our job is about understanding and managing risk. So our goal here really is to help get a better understanding of how much risk is present in this situation and how do these technologies help buy down or reduce risk for applications and use. The other benefit here that we see is by adopting a model similar to what we do with the biometric technology rallies, our goal is to help provide more actionable feedback to industry so that they can then make technologies better. Because at the end of the day, our goal isn't to say this technology is good, this technology is bad. It's to have many technologies available that are really effective in helping to reduce the, 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 the risks associated with identity proofing or remote identity validation. I want to just start out by focusing on the remote part of that. When you say remote identity validation, I imagine that means out in the field somewhere uh, where this type of tool would become necessary, such as, you know, identifying somebody that you run into or somebody applying for something in a field office. Oh, uh, well, let me simplify. Yeah, you you raise a very good point. Um, The word remote can be confusing sometimes, right? Some people think it means like at long distances, some people think it means, um, you know, at a, at, a, at, a, at a distant facility or site. Uh, in this case, what we're talking about is can we do this process using commodity smartphones, right? A person's own device, right? So somebody has their own smartphone. They want to uh, open up a bank account. They want to check in, you know, maybe apply for some sort of status change with a, with a portion of DHS. Can we help verify who they are correctly when they're using their own device so that they don't have to come into government spaces? They can do this from the comfort of their own home, or maybe they're really far from a government office and they don't have the ability to travel. So can we can we extend our services to people and, and have confidence that the technology is making sure it's really that person, not somebody, you know, pretending to be that person? 
Gotcha. Okay. And so in focusing on identity theft in general, you know, in, in covering government trends and technology issues, I've kind of seen that identity theft has kind of taken a backseat to a lot of these other ideas and, and uh, focuses of federal agencies. Uh, and so bringing it back, um, what is the issue with identity theft that DHS is running into? Sure. Um, I guess it's a little bit more than just identity theft, right? Like these technologies underpin a lot of potential capabilities, right? It's not just that someone might steal someone else's identity. There are huge potential benefits if we can really extend government services or application, the, uh, the ability of people to interact with the government or interact with the private private stakeholders at a distance, right, from their own homes, uh, instead of having to go in, in to, to, to different facilities. So basically, one of the reasons why we're interested in this technology is that it's foundational to so many different capabilities, right? Not only is it how people interact with the government, apply for uh, services or benefits, it's how people interact with the private sector. So it's not specific to just identity theft. If anything, uh, we see this as identity is foundational to almost all interactions you have with people. I mean, short of going down to your corner store and buying a newspaper, Everything else, you know, require probably requires some some interaction or engagement of who the person is for uh, fraud or theft or for any number of different things. Are we extending the right benefits to somebody who's applying for for pre-check, uh, for somebody who's applying for a government badge or access to a secure federal facility, uh, for somebody who's trying to do wire large amounts of money from one bank account to another? Um, there's a lot of different elements here. So we see this as really cross-cutting. So while actually, if anything, the DHS niche is relatively small compared to the broader sector. So this is where we see that actually a DHS S&T investment could actually provide a lot of benefit and value to our DHS stakeholders, our federal and interagency partners, as well as to the private sector. Um, because this risk assessment just really hasn't been done. And that, there's a good reason for that. Um, it's hard to test like this. If it was easy, people would have already done it. Um, so we're looking at doing this kind of more robust, more um, informed testing based on what kind of real attacks we're, we're, we presume to see. Uh, so we can better understand how much we're actually, hopefully, whether how well these technologies may address and resolve those problems. You provide me a perfect segue into my next question, which is the test sessions themselves. Uh, I don't know if I want to call it a challenge because it seems like this is just more for research ideas. Um, but can you tell me a little bit about the evaluation process uh, that you all be undertaking for these technologies? Yeah, sure. So. Uh, we're breaking down um, the overall effort into uh, into three tracks, right? The first track will be focus in on how well can software take photos of uh, can software that receive photos, a genuine document, and come up with the, the correct determination that it is genuine. How often can we give it a known fraudulent document and have it determined that it is correctly a fraudulent document? We may also uh, look at what we call document in the loop testing, where you might actually have a physical document in front of a smartphone camera and flip it around. Uh, we expect that there might be some proprietary methods out there that look at you know, the, the interaction of the device, not just receiving the photo. Uh, the second test will focus in on software that takes as an input like a selfie image or imagery and try to figure out, is this a real person or not? And we'll present it real attacks of, of not real people, and we'll see how well the software can actually say that that's not a real human or that's not that person in the photo, right? It might be a photo of a photo. We'll also give it real people, demographically diverse people, and say how well does the software actually say that this is uh, detected a real person is a real person, and do we see differences across demographics? 
um, you know, across male uh, gender or, uh, or, or race or ethnicity or skin tone, things like that. And then we'll look at the matching process. When you try to authentic, you know, verify a person's selfie photo back to their, uh, their authoritative document, to their driver's license or other form of ID, and see, okay, do, how well does that process work? Um, and do we see any sort of difference in performance based off of demographics? Got it. And I have to just ask about the angle of customer experience. It seems to kind of play into this because it almost sounds as if you're not totally concerned. Well, you obviously are, um, but it's not so much the fraudulent part of it, but, you know, making it easier for folks that are trying to uh, work with an agency and, you know, everybody's got to fill out the bureaucratic forms and everything like that. If you can make that process easier for making sure that you properly identify somebody, that's going to go a long way. Yeah, it's really both of those functions. It's really how much can we detect fraud on the front end, right? And then when, uh, how often will the systems fail, right? Either because it makes the incorrect determination or a legitimate user, for some reason, can't actually use the service, right? Uh, because if you could imagine, let's say that we deploy, you know, somebody deploys some of these technologies. And it, let's say it detects a fair amount of fraud, but then it, it incorrectly rejects 90% of legitimate users, that really doesn't get yeah. <laughs> folks the benefits that they're looking for, right? So, so there's this, always this going to be this trade-off between the ability to to detect fraud, but then also get the right uh, get people through the process correctly. And if I can add to that a little bit, you know, um, the technologies have to be good enough to defeat really smart and sophisticated attackers, but also easy enough to use. Where you know, my my grandfather could use the technology and be able to successfully complete it. It has to be really simple to use and very effective for, for people who are legitimate users, but then also be sophisticated enough to make it really hard for attackers to defeat it. So there's a careful, a careful balance to be had there. Yeah, anything to make it so I don't have to dig up my birth certificate anytime I need to get a license, I'm always for it. Yeah, I think one thing that's really powerful here is actually what we're doing here with the federal agencies, some of the federal partners that we're bringing in to help uh, help us out with this effort, because no one of us have all of the necessary expertise to kind of pull this all together. Uh, between what we're seeing with documents, with fraudulent documents, um, with, with some of the, the lack of terminology there, there's going to be this is going to be really interesting because we're pulling in so many different stakeholders to help evaluate this. I think it's going to be very interesting because of the potential benefits this not only has to federal government, but private stakeholders. So in my mind, this is kind of really a story of collaboration. And honestly, all of us working within our, our, our limited resources and abilities to, to make a bigger whole uh, than we each individually could do. So we're, we're really excited about that. Um, we're going to learn a lot through the process. Uh, one thing we don't know, to be honest with you, is uh, we know that we're going to do a lot of testing and we're probably going to find some unexpected things. And in some cases, we, you know, we want to broadly share and we want to make information available to industry to make technology better. Uh, but we might find things that might make it easier for attackers, too. So we might have to apply some sense that, you know, figure out what, what information might be sensitive there. Uh, so we don't, uh, uh, you know, help people who are looking to exploit these systems as well. And just one follow-up that I want to clarify. You talk about these technologies. You mean both hardware and some software applications. You know, I'm just thinking of an app on your phone or something like that that can help identify and make, make sure you're not sending an old selfie of somebody else or making sure it's not a screenshot, something like that. 
That's exactly right. I mean, we pr- I presume that the the many of the technologies we might look at might be software, purely software based. Some things might incorporate a, a you know some composition, some some component of hardware, right? Like you could imagine that you know if you have an app or software running on a smartphone that's meant to help support this remote identity validation, maybe it's just taking a photo. But the other ones might be looking for motion or looking at data from the accelerometer on your phone and making sure that, yeah, it looks like it's being held upright and not, you know, pointing, it's not completely still and pointing at a screen. So they might be looking at different um, sensors within the device to help figure out if it actually appears to be a genuine transaction versus someone who's kind of set up a more of like a pipeline or a process to just flash different photos on a screen and figure out which one's going to beat the system. Arun Vimori heads Homeland Security's Biometric and Identity Technology Center, and he spoke there with Federal News Network's Eric White. You can find this interview along with a link to more information about the challenges at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care. And and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. and you know, uh, Terrell, who who works in in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's you know getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And 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 you think of I I you know often when he'll walk away, I'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he, he he faces everything with optimism, and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy, and you should you should 
you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working the Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, i mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded everyone yeah. is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization and what Mrs. Tri Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we 
that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences. And that our athletes, man, are some of the greatest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.